faithfully going through uh, the book of Second Peter, and he comes once again to uh, fill this uh, pulpit, and we're so glad for his ministry. James. Well, thank you, Pastor Joe, and it's wonderful to see everybody this morning. Certainly, uh, last night and waking up this morning, there is we can we feel the hint of fall in the air. As much as we don't want to admit it, it's coming. Um, but uh, we do give thanks, and as Pastor Joe mentioned, we give thanks even just for uh, he he said the new year. Certainly, we're meaning the new school year, and just kind of sometimes the freshness that it brings, and and back uh, to the normal life routine that school and and things bring. Uh, it can be a very good thing. Summers are often all, always fun, but it's nice to kind of get back into the normal routine. At least I find anyway. Students probably over there shaking their heads, saying sleeping in was nice in the summer, but now I wake up early. So. Well, as Pastor Joe mentioned, we have been going through uh, the book of Second Peter as, as he has given me opportunity to preach. And we'll be continuing that this morning. But before we begin there, I encourage you to flip open to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. And we find here uh, that Jesus is towards the end of his earthly ministry and, and he's giving his disciples some instruction concerning the end of the age. What to look for, what things will be like. And we'll begin and, and pick up beginning in, in verse 1. Jesus says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go, rather, to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Jesus' instruction in this passage is clear. It's very clear. He, he, he gives it at the end. You as, even all people, but you as a believer must be prepared. Be prepared because you don't know the time or hour <clears throat> that the Lord is coming. It might seem like he is delayed, like, like the bridegroom in the story, but he indeed is coming. And when he is, you must be prepared. Which begs the question, what does it mean to be prepared? What does it mean to be prepared for the Lord's coming? Does it mean that you need to uh, live a life of fear and concern, like the Lord could be coming back any second? 
You know, I, I'm thinking even as, as the, the year 2012 approaches, you have all these theories about the end of the world. And, and even recently, the, uh, there was a, a so-called prophecy, obviously a false prophecy, about the coming of the rapture. And people, some, some people were living in hysteria, selling their retirement funds and preparing for the coming kingdom. Is that what being prepared is all about? Does it mean you should sell all of your goods and give them to the poor and, and go on the street corner and preach the gospel, holding up big signs and, 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 and giving all you can for the gospel before the Lord comes? What does it mean to be prepared? Well, in our passage this morning in Second Peter, Peter addresses what it means to be prepared in light of Christ's coming. And so we continue through that. Uh, so please flip there to Second Peter chapter three if you haven't done so, and we'll continue our study in Second in Second Peter chapter three uh, as we inch closer and closer towards the end of this book. As I've often said, Second Peter is is a great and wonderful book, rich in theology, providing us profound warnings and and practical instruction for daily life. Yet is uh, sometimes one of those books that's often overlooked in your daily quiet time readings or. Uh, even, even in Sunday school at church. The first ten verses, as, as we've looked at in, in, in previous times together, uh, Peter gave encouragement on how you as a Christian can be equipped and how you should be encouraged to stand strong when your faith is tested. How do you stand strong when your faith is tested? And, and, and Peter, he, he instructed the church that this is accomplished by remembering and trusting in God's word. Doing this will help you stand firm when the world attacks your faith. And it will also help you to stand strong when you face doubts in your own heart. Because the Bible makes it clear, if you are a Christian, then you will face ridicule at some point in time. If you are a Christian, and even more importantly, living like a Christian, then you're going to face ridicule from your family at times, from the world, from the media, from your co-workers, from your neighbors. So how do you stand strong in that? Peter says that there's mockers are going to come and they're going to mock your faith and mock the Bible. If you're a Christian, this will occur. And we also understand, each of us, that as, even as we're Christians, um, as sinful human beings, we are prone to doubt sometimes. Especially when things around us happen that we don't understand. We can be prone to question God and, and ask, about, ask the question why and, and, and wonder if He's really in control. And so the first ten verses, Peter gives us uh, insightful instruction on how to deal with these things. About trusting in the Lord and, and don't doubt His judgment because He's done it before and we saw it in the days of, uh, of Noah. And that things happen because, uh, for a reason sometimes we don't understand and, and Peter talked about the delay of His coming because but we saw it's not because He's weak or uh, not in control but because he's, he's waiting for all those who are going to come to know Him to do so for His glory and His purposes. And so now, in verse 11, Peter turns and he addresses how, he addressed how Christ's coming should impact you every day. How the, the truth of Christ's coming, and it, it's not debatable through the eyes of Peter. And if you're a believer, it shouldn't be debatable to you. Since Christ is coming back, and His coming back is eminent, which means it could happen at any second. It could happen now, now, or right after church, or tomorrow. If that's the case, or since that's the case, how should that impact your daily life? And that's what Peter will give us instruction this morning. How does that impact you when you're getting ready for work in the morning, or walking to class, or making dinner in the evening? 
And so through this passage, we'll see that Peter gives two important and distinct areas of life that should be influenced by the truth of Christ's coming. So let's read the passage together. 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. Peter writes, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved... Since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found in Him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. So we see here through this passage, and it should be on the outline in your bulletin, but Peter, here he gives two areas of the Christian life that should be directly influenced by the truth of Christ's coming. Two areas of the Christian life that should be directly influenced by the truth of Christ's second coming. And the first one is this. The truth of Christ's coming should directly influence your lifestyle. The truth of Christ's coming should directly influence your lifestyle. Peter begins, and in in verse 11 he says, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved. So what are all these things? Well, it's just, it's all the things that he had just been talking about. That the Lord is coming, and that He's going to come with judgment. In fact, uh, verse 13 gives a a description of this. It says, well, backing up actually in in verse 12, it says that, that the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. And then back up even in verse 10, it says the same thing. That the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And, all the, and the earth and the works on them that are done in them will be exposed. The earth that we know it is going to pass away. It is a fact. It is coming. And there's judgment coming. In fact, he, he, he's talking about the, the fundamental elements. Everything from the, from the smallest molecule is going to burn and melt away on the earth and the heavens. And when he says heavens, he's not speaking of the heavenly realms with angels. He's speaking of the sky and the stars, space as we know it, above us. He says they're going to be dissolved. So much so that all the works on the earth are going to be exposed. Nothing can hide men from what they've done before the Lord. And everyone is going to have to give an account for the things that they have done. And this fact should be terrifying to those who don't know the Lord. Because you know what? The Lord has seen everything you've done. He knows the things you've said. He knows the things you've thought. And each person will stand before Him and give an account. But as a believer, we have no fear for this day. Because as as Christ uh, has paid the penalty on the cross, even as Paul writes in Romans 8, that for those who are in Christ, there is now no condemnation. Because He took our sin on the cross and paid for it. So that when we stand before God, our debt has been paid. We can be forgiven. And since this is true, Peter says to the believers, because this is true, what sort of people ought you to be? And the way this is phrased in the Greek is not a question. He's not asking for response. It's actually an exclamation point. Which is why you don't see a question mark in the text. He says, in other words, since this is true... You should be people, and he continues and says, you should be people of holiness and godliness. 
This, the, the, the truth of His coming and this judgment should have a direct impact on your life. You should be this kind of person. It should influence you. Christ's coming, Christ's future coming should influence you. And he begins and says that you should be people of holiness. You want to be prepared for Christ's coming? You want to be somebody who's, who's well-equipped and ready to stand before the Lord? Well, Peter says here, it begins by being holy. The notion of, of holy reflects the, the truth of being set apart from the world. Being set apart or morally pure or upright. And, and Scripture speaks much on holiness. Typically in reference to uh, the Lord. And, and in fact, one could even argue that holiness is probably the, the greatest of, of His attributes. We see uh, even, I'm just thinking of, of Isaiah, when, when he happened to, to see a vision of heaven. Uh, John, the Apostle John as well, he sees a vision of heaven. And when he sees it, he, they see these flying beings flying around the throne, the seraphim. And what are they saying? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The Lord is set apart, and so therefore He commands that that this set-apartness, this difference, should also be reflected by His people, since we represent Him and since we want to be like Him. In fact, uh, Peter himself records this command from the Lord in 1 Peter 1.16, where the Lord commands us to be holy, for I am holy. The remembrance of Christ's coming should drive you to be set apart from worldliness. What worldliness? Oh, the lust of the flesh, the, the lust of the eyes, pride of life. We should be set apart from that. Have you ever been in a, a situation where there's, there's a wrong, like a, some sort of wrongdoing going around? Maybe if you're a student, you've been in a class when the teacher's away and some students are te- you know, uh, cheating on a test or, or being mischievous. Or maybe uh, you in your workplace, you've been uh, you know, where people maybe are looking at something on the internet and not doing work that they should be doing. Or even maybe talking about a boss or a co-worker and you just know it's not right. You, and you get that awkward feeling like, I just... I gotta go. I can't be here. It's just that awkward feeling. I need to get away from this. Well, that's what Peter is, is calling us to be in holiness. That we should have that awkward feeling anytime we're around worldliness. That this, I'm not about, this is not what I, I need to get out of here. Because my God has called me to holiness. You should be uncomfortable around worldliness and strive to be set apart. Why? Because you know what? Your actions matter. God cares about your actions. And your actions will echo into eternity. You should consider the Master who who loves you and and gave His life for you. And that He could be returning at any time. And a lot of this we know. And we could also attest that, you know what, living, as much as we would like to, to live in a way always pleasing to Him, it takes work, doesn't it? It's not easy. I wish I could just wake up in the morning and like, I think today's going to be a holy day. No split. No, it takes work, doesn't it? It takes denying yourself every day. And speaking of holiness, uh, uh, Charles Spurgeon once said, You will not gain holiness by standing still. Nobody ever grew holy without consenting, desiring, and agonizing to be holy. Sin will grow without sowing, but holiness needs cultivation. Follow it. It will not run after you. You must pursue it with determination, with eagerness, with perseverance, as a hunter pursues his prey. Let the, tr- let the truth of Christ's eminent return drive you to holiness. Drive you to holiness, to be set apart. 
Because you know that, that soon you will be in His presence and you want to do all that you can to please Him. The second thing that, that, that Peter continues on, he says, What sort of people ought you to be? You should be people of A, first, holiness, and second, godliness. In addition to holiness, you should be people of godliness. And godliness and holiness are frequently very closely linked in Scripture. The, the, and, we, and we spoke a little bit about godliness in, when we went through Second Peter chapter 1. And to understand holiness, it just means a, a sense, a spirit of reverence. Of being in awe of the presence of the Lord and all that you do. It should impact. Striving for godliness means you have this reverence of God so much so that it impacts the things you say, the things you do and think. In fact, the root word in the Latin for godliness is where we get our English word piety or being pious. And that, that kind of reflects that kind of notion. In the beginning of, uh, of Second Peter, as I, notion, as, as I mentioned, uh, Peter gives the notion that godliness, in a sense, is your chief aim as a believer. It begins by worship and giving God glory, but after that, we strive for godliness. And in, in, in chapter 1, verse 3, if you look there, Peter says that his divine, his God being, divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. The Lord wants you to be godly. He desires that for you. And He's given you everything you need in His Word, through the church, through His Spirit, to be so. And then again, later, even just a couple verses down, Peter lists uh, godliness as, as one of those characteristics that, that every Christian should strive for, and in doing so, proves to yourself and to the world that you indeed are a Christian. With this holiness and godliness in mind, I can just picture Peter in his pastoral tone saying to the believers in this church, Be prepared. Strive for lives of holiness and godliness. What are you going to be doing when the Lord comes back? What is He going to find you doing that day? You don't know when it's going to be. It could be any time. But when He does, what is He going to be find you doing? That question should echo through us all that should motivate us to impact our lifestyle because the way we live is important because like holiness godliness too does not come naturally and we all understand that we've been forgiven of our sins yes if you're a Christian you, you've been given a new nature yes you've been given the spirit of God within you and God's word to give you instruction yes and yet we still struggle don't we godliness needs to be cultivated and pursued the theme of godliness is, is particularly important in the, in the book of 1 Timothy. In fact, Paul uses the word at least ten times in his instruction to Timothy. And in chapter 4, verse 7 of that book, he, he, he instructs Timothy and he says, Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And I think this reflects Peter's sentiment as well. You have to work, you have to train yourself for godliness because you don't know when the Master is going to come. And you know what? When He comes, that's when the life to come begins. And so training yourself for godliness now not only prepares you for the life to come, but it also gives God the glory here. So that when He comes, He finds you and says, Well done, good and faithful servant. Do you want that preparedness? Do you want the Lord to say that to you? So Peter continues. And he says, What sort of people ought you to be? 
How should your lifestyle be impacted? He says of holiness and godliness. And then uh, down in, in verse 14, concerning lifestyle, he says this, Beloved, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish. How should the coming of Christ impact your lifestyle? It should strive you to, to grow in holiness and godliness. And then here Peter says, to be without spot and blemish. And you can see that that's, it echoes that question. What is he going to find you doing? And Peter says, you should be found when the Lord comes back without spot or blemish. In the, uh, in the Old Testament law, and the sacrificial system that the Lord set up, uh, the command, when they would give uh, animal sacrifices, the Lord commanded Israel to only offer up those animals that were without spot or blemish. They were to give their very best as sacrifice to the Lord. They're not just gonna, it's not much of a sacrifice to give your lame animal or the, the ugly duckling to the Lord and say, here you go, Lord, I'm, I'm sacrificing to you. No, like even as Pastor Joe mentioned last, last week about offering up the first fruits, uh, God commanded His people to offer up sacrifices that were without spot or blemish. And here, now back to our context, Peter is, is not speaking about uh, our, our physical appearance, because if we were to, to present the Lord without spot or blemish, I'm not sure any of us would probably qualify. Me, certainly not. But he's talking about our moral conduct in your spiritual life. So Peter says, as you consider Christ's approach, prepare yourself, cleanse yourself, mend yourself, so that when He comes, you can present yourself flawless and without defect. Because you know what? As the Bible says, you are living sacrifices to Him. And as a sacrifice, we should be spotless and blameless so that we can offer our lives to Him in a pleasing way. When I was in high school, my very first job was uh, to be a landscaper, my first real job. And I had this landscaping job from high school all the way kind of through college, really, until I left the seminary. And one of the things that we would have to do in this landscaping job at various times of the year is we would get just hired for, uh, by, by one of our clients to do some weeding in their garden, maybe in their front yard or the backyard. And when I first started this job, I, was, I, was the, I wasn't the worst weeder. I just would take, it would take me forever. Everyone else would be done, and I'd still be in the back kind of pulling these weeds and raking and raking and raking. And the reason, because, the reason was, was because I was just too picky. Like every time I'd get up to walk away, I'd see a, another little infiltrator that I'd have to get, and I'd have to go get there. And I'm, not, I'm talking not even after you use the weeding, uh, the weeding tools. Like you're down on your knees, and you're plucking little things, you know, and they're like, come on, James, let's go. And even the, the owner's coming out of the house, you know, because they're going to say that when they're paying you by the hour, right? So... They're like, it looks fine. It looks great. You know, I'm like, no, they're still in there. You know, and so I was just pulling and weeding away. My eye was too picky. You know, sometimes when you're weeding your back, your own back garden, I suppose that's good. But there's times where you don't have to be that particular. Things look good. They don't have to be perfectly flawless. But you know, and there's times in life when they do. And your own walk with the Lord, your spiritual walk, is one of them. What are you doing in your walk now to cleanse yourself, to to find every last little weed to pull it out so that you might present yourself flawless and without spot or blemish? Because it's so easy for us to to think, well, you know, that's just who I am. I I have my own little quirks. You know, I'm just short-tempered. That's how I am. Oh, I just, from time to time, I, I use language I shouldn't. That's just how I am. No. No, if you're a believer, that's not who you are. If you're a believer, then you want to conform to the image of Christ. 
Are we ever going to attain perfection in this life? No. There's always going to be weeds growing. And we know this well, living in our area. You go out and weed one Saturday, you come out Monday, and it's the jungle again already. It seems like that in your spiritual life too sometimes, I know. But we should strive to cleanse ourselves, to weed everything out, so that we can present ourselves as a living and pleasing sacrifice to the Lord without spot and blemish. That kind of lifestyle is preparing you to be ready for when the Lord comes, which could be at any minute. The truths of Christ's coming should directly influence your lifestyle. Prepare yourself. But Peter doesn't just go with lifestyle. He also gives us a very insightful and and, and impactful area as well. The truth of Christ's coming, and this is the second one on your outline. The truth of Christ's coming should directly influence your attitude. Your attitude. The outlook that you have on life. Lifestyle and attitude are connected, but they are also distinct, aren't they? Two people can be doing the same thing, even as I mentioned in, to the youth in Sunday school this morning. Two people can be doing the same thing, but their attitude and motivations can be completely different. Right? A 10-year-old going to his room to take a nap is probably going to have a different attitude than a 40-year-old going to do the same thing. Right? One is punishment, one is pleasure. Attitude, in, in so many ways, drives the reason why you do the things you do. And I firmly believe that attitude is where many Christians fail and lack understanding. Because for most of you, or at least those who grew up in the church, you understand, okay, yes, yes, Pastor James, I know I need to strive for godliness. Yes, I know I need to live holy lives and a life of holiness. It's not secret. But attitude sometimes is different. You go around each day to your work, to your office, with your families, and you, you try to do the right things. You try to teach your kids the Bible, or you try to, you know, be friendly to your coworker. But oftentimes you lack this sense of joy and purpose and fulfillment. Not always, but often. The motivation there is just because you know you, you should do them, but your attitude is very lackluster. Oftentimes, you might be tempted to do it out of obligation instead of joy. But Peter reminds us that the truths of Christ's coming, that He could be coming any time, should influence your attitude, not just, should it influence your, uh, not just Sunday or Bible study attitude, but your everyday attitude. The attitude when you've had a long day and things aren't going so well at work. Or you've got a lot of stuff going on with your family or the busyness. You know what? The light of Christ's coming, the truth that He is coming, should influence your attitude. And Peter, Peter lists out, beginning in verse 12, going back up there. 11, he says, Since all these things are thus to be resolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Considering Christ's coming should give you a, an attitude of longing for and waiting for His return. In fact, Peter even says, hastening it. As if, as if you should have this attitude of, Lord, I desire you to come back so much that I will do whatever. If possible, I can, even, can I even hurry it up? Can I make you come back faster? What can I do? I long to see you. 
It makes me think of the, that example in, the, in the, the parable of the prodigal son. You know the story. You have this young kind of young buck teen who's all you know wants to go away from his family, and so he rudely asks his dad for his inheritance early. He runs off. He squanders it. He lives a life of destitute, and then Jesus says he finally comes to his senses and returns back, and is going to repent to his father. And you remember the attitude of the father. The attitude of the father is he, he, he sees him from a far distance and goes running out to meet him. I think that's the kind of attitude that Peter means. Because in a sense, the father still loves his son. He, in fact, wished and probably longed that he could see him again. And the fact that he saw him from afar off gives the notion that in a sense he was looking for him and waiting for him. Do you have that attitude with the Lord where you're just looking and longing? I think that's what Peter is reflecting here. And he, and he says, he gives the notion of, of waiting and longing for three times in as many verses. Verse 12, he says, waiting for and hastening the coming of the Lord. Verse 13, but according to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens. And verse 14, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things. Why should this characterize you as a Christian? Why should we have this longing for and waiting for the Lord? Well, because Peter goes on to see, so that, because when He comes, the earth will be destroyed, the works exposed, and we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. You see, at that time, Scripture says, finally, there will be that day where every tongue will confess and every knee will bow to Jesus Christ and worship Him as Lord. Even those who didn't believe on Him, and they, and they will be punished for, for their doings. But finally at that day, all will worship Christ and justice will be established and upheld and righteousness. The sinful world of hurt, of loneliness, of bitterness, of jealousy will be done away with. The Bible says that every tear will be wiped away. In Revelation, that's, it was read, it says that the Lord will wipe away every tear from their eyes and, the, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. What a wonderful picture of that. John even says that our dwelling place will be with God and God's dwelling place will be with us. Can you imagine that? I think of the Apostle John who is seeing all these things in the book of Revelation and he's seeing the new heavens and the new earth and its righteousness. He doesn't say, wow, I want to check that place out. He doesn't say, oh, wow, that's cool, God, I can't wait to see there. What does he say? He says, come, come, Lord Jesus. Let it be today that we might enter into that place. Let me ask you, would you welcome the Lord's coming this very afternoon? Would you welcome it? On your way home, after refreshments, of course. This afternoon, tomorrow morning. Do you, would you welcome that in your heart? And you know what, I know many of you would. But in your heart of hearts, do you really believe that? I know most of you would give me the Sunday school answer. Yes, Pastor James, of course who would. It's the Lord. I'm a Christian, that's what I'm supposed to say. But do you really think that? How do you really feel? Because my guess is a number of you who are listening might be a little hesitant about it. And you might lack excitement at Christ's coming. Why? Why is that? It's a real reality in 
in our lives, isn't it? And I think, I think the number one reason for this oftentimes, there's many I think, but I think the number one reason often is our current walk and our current relationship with Christ. Do you long to know Him more today? In your quiet times, in your Bible studies, when you go to work, when you drive, when you're stuck in traffic? Do you desire to know Him more today? Do you want to know more about Him? The, the image of the invisible God who loved you and died for you provides support and help and comfort, ways out of temptation, life. Would you be like Peter who after seeing the resurrected Christ and recognizing Him while they're on the, uh, on the Sea of Galilee sees the Lord and can't even wait for the boat to get to the shore so he disrobes and dives in and swims as fast as he can so that he might get to see the Lord just even a few seconds quicker than the boat would take him? Would you do the same? Yeah, I know many, many Christians today don't feel this way. Sure you believe. Yeah, you love the Lord. You desire... To, 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 you believed in Him. You, for, you, you repented of your sin. But oftentimes, you just kind of become a typical part of your life, like your family or your job. If you don't long for Him now, it, it's not a real surprise that you don't long for His coming. In his recent book, Uneclipsing the Sun, uh, Rick Holland, he kind of recounts this, this experience of, uh, as a boy, as a first grader, of seeing his first total eclipse of the sun and what it was like at school. And all his first grade class went outside to kind of see what it was like. And he notes that it wasn't light, but it wasn't dark either. What light there was didn't have the quality of dusk or dawn. He says, I was engulfed in a, a giant shadow that swallowed up every other shadow. Colors lost their vibrancy, and everything around was contrastless variations of gray. And he goes on to state that this is the very spiritual state of, of many believers today. That through the mundane and the, and the routine areas of their life, they've allowed things to eclipse the glory of Jesus Christ in their life. So that things now, although there is some light... They're living in, in a life of, of area of variations of gray and shadows. And they've lived there so long that they've grown accustomed to it. So that even the colors aren't as vibrant as they used to. Is this you? Are you listening to this this morning and thinking, you know, okay, there's some, there was some days, some weeks, maybe after a retreat or maybe after Bible study, that, that I see the sun pull away and I see the glory of Jesus Christ in my life. The hope that He gives. His His. You know, do you, as we sing, do you stand in awe of Him? Or do you just, you know He's there and you believe in Him, but it's just something in your life. Well, if this is you, and even if it's not, we know that there's times where we're tempted to be there. You might ask, well, what do I do? James, what do I do? I I want to see more the glory of Christ. Well, it it begins with knowing Him more and striving to know Him more in your walk, in your quiet times. Who is Jesus Christ? If someone walked up to you at work or your neighbor and said, Tell me, I hear a lot about Jesus. Who is Jesus? What kind of answers would you be able to give? Would it just be, Oh, He's the Savior of the world, the Son of God? Or could you roll off a list of, He's the, he's the, the, the image of the invisible Son. The Word made flesh. He conquered death. He is God in human form. Total righteousness. God Himself, the Creator of all things. 
He formed me in the womb and knew my name before the foundations of the world. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and I long to worship around His throne. Jesus says in John 17, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The more you know Him, the more you will grow to eagerly await His return. You will actually wait and and, and want to hasten it and you will find joy and fulfillment through Him. Because we know that in life, ultimately, the only true joy and fulfillment can come through knowing Him. Peter continues and he says, we don't only have an attitude of, of waiting and hastening. Verse 14, looking down, he says, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish and at peace. Peter continues and says, you know what, as, as you remember the coming of Christ, you should be at peace. Peace, the attitude of peace should characterize you as the life of a Christian. Do you have peace? Do you know for sure that at this moment if Christ came back, you know where you would go? That you have nothing to fear at Christ's coming, no matter what happens in life? Peace should characterize us because we know that in the end we have won the war. For those who are in Christ, the war is over. Sure, there's battles still to be fought and these battles are important, but in the end, victory is ours through Jesus Christ. Do you have this peace? It's God's desire that you have peace. And as we remember that Christ's coming will put an end to this oppression and war, we remember it's like, you know what, in the end, little things turn into big things in our life, don't they? These, These... kind of big emergencies in the end in the scheme of things we blow up and we should allow alright Lord I know that this is going on in my life and I trust you but I just hope you're you're coming soon and I I can't wait because this this will be done away with and speaking to his disciples the Lord said peace I leave with you my peace I give to you not as the world gives do I give it to you let not your hearts be troubled neither let them be afraid he said this to his disciples who were about to experience some difficult trials at his crucifixion in the days ahead. But it applies to all who are in Christ. God desires that you live a life of peace. In fact, that's often what separates us from the world because the, the world does not have the peace that Christ offers. The world does not have the peace that we should have. Not worrying about the future. Not worrying about what will happen because we know we've been reconciled to the living God. And it's a common thing. Actually, 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament begin, Grace and peace to you who are in the Lord Jesus Christ. Second Peter is, is one of them. As you consider Christ coming, remember the forgiveness of your sins. The testimony of the truth of His Word. And the victory and hope that we have through Him. It's kind of a... In a sense, think of it as well. It's like the difference between watching a, a game, say it's a sports game, where you already know the ending, you know your team wins, as opposed to uh, watching it and knowing you're down and you just gave up a fumble and you don't know. There's kind of like, we're going to lose and there's this tension. I was watching a, an important game in our family's life last night, BYU versus Utah, and it was a little uh, tense in the beginning. At the end, it turned out pretty well. But... Your outlook of the game is completely different if you know the end when you're watching it because you're just like, oh, we just gave up an interception we're down by 14. But I know we're going to win in the end, so you know, let's get Slurpees, whatever. It's, there's, not that, there's, there's a sense of peace about the end of the game because you know it. 
And yet so many of us are so tempted to live life as if we don't know the end of the game. And we worry and there's this tense and we have this attitude that lacks the joy of Christ coming and lacks as if, oh Lord, I don't know what's going to happen. Oh, and we doubt in our hearts and we, and we struggle in our walk. Let the truth of Christ coming influence your attitude and let it be one of peace. Let it be one of peace. And finally, as I close, he, he gives one more way of influence of attitude in, in verse 15, the beginning of 15. It says, Let be diligent to be found in him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. There's many attitudes. I was trying to find the, the one word attitude that this should influence, but the truth that the Lord's delay you should count as salvation can impact many different attitudes. It, should, it impacts you to have an attitude of thanksgiving and of praise and of evangelism and of trust in the Lord. Because he, he, Peter closes his thought by now, instead of focusing on Christ's coming, that it could come any second, now he kind of switches it and he focuses on his delay. And he kind of refers back up to what he had previously talked about in verse 8, about how, you know what, one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. He has a purpose in his delay, and the purpose is that he's being patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish. In that he has a plan, and there's people out there who are still yet to come to know him, and so he's delaying. And you know what? When Peter wrote this letter, he was referring to you if you're a Christian. That he was delaying because he knew you before the foundations of the world. He knew you exist. He knew that he would draw you to himself. And so he was waiting so that that might be fulfilled. And now there's still others as this day comes. It is not out of lack of power or truth, but mercy that the Lord waits. And so we should remember that. When we wake up in the morning, we should long, you should long and say, Lord, I hope you come today. But if you don't, be glorified by me. Reach out, convict those and pull those people to yourself. And use me in my work, use me in my neighborhood, that I might be a tool for that, that I might bring the good news of salvation to those who are lost and dying in this world. That makes the waiting worth the waiting. Because we know with each day, there will be more people who are going to rejoice around the throne with us and the heavenly choir. Isn't that wonderful? I praise God He waited. I praise God that He, he waited for me and that, that, that I've been able to, to know Him and come to know Him. And I hope you feel the same. Let the truth of Christ coming impact your life every day. Let the truth of Christ coming impact your lifestyle and your attitude so that you know Him more. And it doesn't just stop with your actions, but it carries out into your attitude so that as you realize, as you know Him, the glorious Son of God, Jesus Christ, your Savior, that you might say like John, Come, Lord Jesus, come. And then may God's peace be with you as well. Let's pray. Lord, we give thanks for this morning. We give thanks for the truth of Your Word. That as we remember, You came once and fulfilled um, the will of the Father, you are coming back again and we'll do the same. And we rejoice in your work. We thank you for even being in, in heaven interceding for us this very second. And we eagerly await your return that you might be glorified and that all might be set right. That you might be glorified and receive the praise that is due your name. We thank you, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.